We like to begin our time into the Word with the prayer of the Lord. And this is not something that we just recite uh, out of rote memorization. This is something that we engage our heart and our faith with. We believe that this prayer is all-encompassing. It is one of the most comprehensive and yet concise prayers. And one of our uh, statesmen and elders in the house here, Don Patterson, greeted me this morning as he pulled up and he said, I just read something this morning from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that the Lord's Prayer is actually an entire summarization and synopsis of the Psalms, which is, which is fascinating to, to, to identify that in that prayer that the Lord actually summarized all 150 Psalms of the Old Testament. So would you join me this morning in transitioning from a time of connecting and a time of fun and connecting our hearts here to the word. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Holy Spirit, we so acknowledge this is your church. Jesus, this church is built on the solid rock of who you are. And we're grateful that we have an opportunity to gather on a regular basis in small gatherings and in large gatherings to worship you, to learn from you, to submit our hearts and our minds, to submit our attitudes and our lives to the word of God. And we ask today, Holy Spirit, that you would take the word and you would shape us and that you would form us. Father, I pray for those who need encouragement today that their spirit and their soul would be strengthened I pray for the sick today that their bodies would be healed. I pray for every marriage in this room today to experience life and vibrancy. And for those, Father, who are experiencing hopelessness in their marriages or their families, God, that they would be filled with fresh hope and faith. And Father, we pray today that as we listen and as we engage and as we study the word, that you would mature us and grow us as a people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's put on the screen, if we could, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 12. And I am going to do my best today to take this small passage of Scripture in verses 12 through 26 of Philippians chapter 1. And like Jonathan had mentioned last week, this is not something that we have characteristically done in Antioch Church. Typically, throughout the years, we have preached more topical series But guys, I'm going to tell you, I am really enjoying and I am really getting a lot out of the process of going through the scriptures and preaching in a more expository manner, which just basically means to take an entire book and to break it down verse by verse. So we may see more of this in the house And I think it's healthy for our study of the scripture. I think it's healthy for us to see verses in their proper context, to bridge that context with our current context, to allow the Holy Spirit to breathe life into application. So um, I'm thoroughly excited about what is happening here, particularly in the study of Philippians. Just to give a quick summary, last week Jonathan opened up and uh, did a survey 
And he identified three primary themes in the book of Philippians. And if you want to listen to that message, you can catch it on our podcast through our website and AntiochCOS.com. Theme number one is the theme of partnership, like Bernard hit on this morning. The entire book of Philippians is written as one of the friendliest letters of all the churches that Paul connected with. We see that there is a special, intimate relation that Paul had with the church at Philippi. And you see this throughout all the language, and you see this actually in the word partnership or the Greek word koinonia. The second theme that we see is the theme of the gospel. From chapter one till the end of the book, Paul's greatest passion is to see that the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, that it is advanced, that it is furthered, and that the, that the entire world hear this message of the gospel and embrace this message of the gospel, and they become proponents themselves in sharing the message of the gospel. We're going to hit that more today. The third theme that Jonathan mentioned last week is the theme of joy in adversity, joy in adversity. And who better to write this than the man who is writing this book from prison? He is writing this book from prison. Many scholars, most scholars actually believe that he is writing this book while he's at, in prison at Rome. So let's pick this up today in Philippians chapter one, and we're gonna read verses 12 through 14 first. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Let's go back to verse 12. We're gonna walk through these. It's interesting here to note that when Paul starts, he says, now I want you to know. This is actually customary of ancient letters of friendship. This phrase right here, now I want you to know, so it's important for us to realize that Paul is actually writing this letter to the church at Philippi in response to three gifts that the Philippian church had sent to Paul while he was in prison. And they were concerned about his welfare. They wanted to know how his heart was. They wanted to know what his physical circumstances and situations were while he was in prison. They were sending this love offering in a monetary form, and they wanted to hear back, how is our apostle, how is our father in the Lord, and how is our friend? So Paul writes back, and here's the interesting thing we're going to see. He starts off and he says, now I want you to know. And immediately what he does is he doesn't tell them about himself. He doesn't tell them about the dank and damp and dark conditions of the prison. He doesn't tell them how frustrated or how discouraged or how hopeless it is. What he does is he tells them not about his situation, but he tells them about the affairs of the gospel. So he says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. We're gonna find throughout verse 12 through 26 that one of Paul's premier and primary passions of life was this message of the gospel that utterly and literally transformed his life. Here's the beautiful thing. Paul is sitting in a prison cell. Let's look at verse 13. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. Some translations say throughout the whole praetorium. 
And many scholars believe that this was actually Caesar's elite imperial security force. These are the highest of the highest, the elite of the elite uh, security guards that serve in Caesar's army. So they would rotate their shifts every four hours, and there are actually some scholars that believe that not only was he under house arrest, which would give him a little bit of freedom from time to time, but some scholars believe, which was customary of prisoners of this time, that Paul is actually shackled and chained to a soldier that was rotated out every four hours. Now, how many of you guys feel like you're shackled in a situation? How many of you feel like you're shackled uh, in a relationship? How many of you feel like in your job that you're just shackled? In your job that you're just imprisoned? In your job that there is no hope out? Friends, I want you to know today that Paul was literally in that situation. And here was his perspective. His perspective wasn't how difficult this is, although it was difficult. He wasn't just denying the reality of how difficult this was. Paul was saying, in spite In spite of its difficulty, I am focusing on how the gospel is advancing through this difficulty. And here's what he says, I rejoice. And here's why I rejoice. Because the highest elite soldiers in Caesar's imperial army, there is no way, Paul understood, there is no way that I would ever have access to these guys. And yet, I am writing this letter to you, possibly with an army soldier chained to my wrist. You gotta know that these guys had exposure to Paul's prayer life. You gotta know that when people would come in and he would have discipleship small groups, these soldiers were there listening to those messages. You gotta know that when Paul was agonizing in prayer for the state of the church, these guys were listening to that and they immediately thought there's something different about this guy. There's something different about this way he's experiencing hardship. There's something different about, about his demeanor and about his perspective and about his passion. There's something different about the way that he finds purpose in the midst of this prison cell. And that's why he can say the entire palace guard now knows I'm not here because I'm some political vigilante. I'm not here because I've committed some awful, heinous crime. I am here on defense of the gospel. I am here to stand before the courts of Caesar and the gospel is on defense and I am going to fight for its validation. This is also what he says. He says, not only has the palace guard understood why I'm in chains, but everyone else, and here's a beautiful thing in verse 14. He says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What's he talking about here? Well, if we understand historically when Paul was writing this, particularly if he were writing from Rome, The Christians in Rome at that time were getting kind of quiet. And they were getting quiet because Emperor Nero, and we find many years later, Emperor Nero unleashes one of the greatest assaults of persecution against the church in Rome that has ever been documented in the early church. And so naturally and understandably, the church there at Rome was a little sheepish And they were getting a little shy and they were getting a little quiet. But then they see that this amazing father in the faith, they see the example of what faith looks like in the midst of such awful persecution. And what it does 
is it causes boldness and courage to rise inside of them. Paul rejoices because two things are happening. The palace guard is hearing the gospel. The palace guard is seeing a life lived for Christ on display. And he's also rejoicing because the church is becoming emboldened. Some of these guys are becoming emboldened because of Paul's example. Some of them are becoming emboldened because of their love for Paul. Because they recognize and they realize, man, our greatest evangelist is confined. The greatest evangelist for the Christian faith is no longer out on the fields and on the streets openly sharing the gospel. We've got to pick up the slack. Let's look at the next verse here. We're going to look at verse 15 through 17. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Verse 16, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So these are the believers and the brothers and the sisters in Rome who are saying, we love, we love Jesus and we love Paul. And as a result of our love for Jesus and for Paul, we are now going to pick up the slack and fill in the gaps of preaching the gospel where Paul is not able to do so anymore. But here's something that's interesting. Not only is Paul in prison, but Paul has some enemies. I didn't realize this, but Paul was quite a controversial figure. He had a lot of enemies, and not just enemies from other religions, and not just the Judaizers, and not just the super apostles of First and Second Corinthians, I say that tongue in cheek. He actually had Jewish Christians, people that were believers in the faith that were outright opposed to Paul. And guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I wrestled through this. I wrestled through this. I, I, I asked the Lord, I said, what does it look like to preach the gospel out of envy? And what does it look like to preach the gospel out of rivalry and, and out of selfish ambition? I don't understand this. And I felt like very clearly, the Holy Spirit just reminded me. He reminded me, when we engage in turf wars as churches, we're doing that right there. We're preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, false motive, and rivalry and division. It's like the Holy Spirit reminded me, son, when you're building, when, you, when, you're, when you're doing anything and everything that you're doing for me, when you're doing that to just build up your church, to be a bigger church in the city, not caring with what I'm doing in the rest of the city, you're doing that right there. You're preaching the gospel out of false motives and rivalry and envy and selfish ambition. Let's look at the next verse. Oh, no, no, let's, yeah, right here. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me. And this is amazing. These guys actually were doing what they were doing to one-up Paul while he was in prison. That's crazy. It's essentially like they were saying, well, we're just going to build up our house church while you're in prison, you're confined, you're limited, and you're not able to get out there, and you're not able to grow your ministry. So what you know what we're going to do? We're, we're going to... We're going to up the ante, and we're going to work harder so that we can get more people in our ministry while you're, while you're, you know, in prison. And this is what Paul does. I love this. And this has just been speaking to me for weeks, you guys. Look at verse 18. Paul says, so what? So what? Look at that verse. What does it matter? And then he says this phrase that I think is really important for us as followers of Jesus. He says, the most important thing. Will you say that with me? Say the most important thing. The most important thing is that Christ is preached. 
whether he's preached out of selfish ambition or wrong motive or whether he's preached out of the right motives, I rejoice that Christ is preached. Now we have to understand, Paul wasn't this morbid guy who, who took pleasure in pain. That's not what's going on here. And no one is asking you to take pleasure in the pain that you're in in your situation right now. That's weird. But what we are challenging you to do is say in the very midst of your pain, you have a choice on what you focus on. And you can focus on the activity and the work and the wisdom and the will of Christ in the midst of this situation and how Christ is advancing his kingdom through this situation and how Christ is working all things together for the good even in this situation or, or you can focus all of your effort, your attitude, your energy, your attention, and you can meditate on all the things you hate about this situation. Here's what I know. Going back to last week, Jonathan said in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you. Guys, he's at work. He's at work. In fact, Jesus says, my father is always at work. He's at work in the most difficult and depressing seasons and situations of your life. Guys, sometimes you just have to outlast that season. You just have to outlast that season. And here's, how, here's a great way to outlast that season. Focus on what Christ is doing. Asking the Holy Spirit, getting around the counsel of other believers, searching the scriptures, finding the historical perspective. I read this in one of the commentaries. I thought it was brilliant. It said one of the ways that we find the perspective that Christ is at work is actually going back and searching throughout church history and throughout scriptural history and seeing the activity of God. He is always at work, even in the darkest moments of human history, you guys. So Paul says, I'm in prison. But I rejoice because the palace guard is hearing the gospel. I rejoice because the Roman church is being lit on fire. And I've also got enemies out there. I've got other churches. I've got other church members that are attacking me. They're trying to stir up trouble for me. But you know what? I rejoice in that too. Because guess what? The gospel is being preached. I'm going to focus on what Christ is up to. Now, this first part here in verses 12 through 18a 18a is the first half or the first section of the verse of 18. Paul is focusing on the present. He is focusing on what is happening, the situation and circumstance in his life, and why he has joy in the midst of the present situation and circumstance. But we turn a corner in 18b, and this is what Paul says. He says, because of this I rejoice, and yes, I will continue to rejoice. And in that phrase, I will continue to rejoice, Paul actually transitions from the present circumstances to the future. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Holy Spirit or through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I want to focus on this verse here. This is an amazingly powerful verse because in this verse we find that not only is it the work of man and not only is it the work of God, we find in this verse a beautiful blend and a balance of both. Paul is saying, guys, I'm in prison right now and we're gonna read a little bit further. We're gonna find that Paul says, guys, I really don't know what's gonna happen. 
We have to understand the state of mind that Paul was in when he was writing this from his prison cell. He literally does not know the outcome of the future, of his immediate future. And when he talks about living, he's talking about being released. And when he's talking about dying, he's talking about being executed. Because in a matter of days or weeks, Paul is going to stand before the imperial tribunal and he is going to be tried in defense of the gospel. So as he's writing to the church at Philippi, he says, listen, here's what I know. Keep praying for me. Keep praying for me. Your prayers are making a difference. And as you pray for me, and this is so important for us to understand, Paul is encouraging the Philippian church to pray for him, not that he'll be released. I want you to think about this. Paul is in prison, he's gonna stand before trial, and he's got, two, he's got two options, release or execution, and the thing that he prays for is not to be released. The thing that he prays for is that he would boldly and courageously stand in defense of the gospel. I want that to mess with our Western immediate, short-term, narrow-minded perspective here for a little bit. Because there's a part of my carnal man and there's a part of my Western, independent, individualistic mindset. There's a part of my, you know, quick-minded approach to life that does not get that. And I was reminded of a scene in Braveheart. Let's look right here at the next verse, and I'm going to pull these things together. Verse 20. He says, I eagerly and expect, and I hope, this is future language, that I will in no way be ashamed. I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life whether by death. Let me break this down for you. For those of you guys who haven't seen the greatest movie ever made, (laughs) I'm going to give you a ton of spoilers here. I'm just going to just spoil the whole movie. But you got to watch it to enjoy the journey, and there's a lot of bloodshed. I'm just going to go ahead and be upfront with you. So, William Wallace is one of the, the, the tribal clansmen of the nation of Scotland. And at that time, Scotland was under uh, oppressive rule from England. And long story short, William Wallace begins to uh, galvanize and mobilize the clans and the nobles of Scotland to fight back against England to declare their freedom from tyranny and oppression. And in the final scene of that movie, there is an opportunity where William Wallace, and he's sitting with his three greatest friends, he's taking counsel with these guys. Actually, at this point, there's probably just two left. He's taking counsel with his two closest friends, and they tell him, they say, you're about to walk into a trap. And they're pleading with him. They're pleading with him. William, don't do this. Don't do this. If you do this, you're not gonna be able to get out of this. If you do this, you're not gonna be able to escape. If you do this, you're gonna become a prisoner. You're gonna become captive, and your life could be taken out. And it reminds me, It reminds me of actually when Paul, we find in the book of Acts, when he's interacting with different people in the church, when he's going back to Ephesus, and they say, Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's a trap. It's a trap. Paul, don't do it. 
Paul, people are waiting there for you and they don't care about you and they're, they're, they're gonna shackle you down and you're gonna be in prison. And Paul says, guys, listen, do not hold me back from my God-given assignment. My God-given assignment to see that the gospel is defended in the highest tribunal courts of the land. And if I have to lay down my life for that, so be it. We're talking about real Christianity here. Do you know that there are actually believers that are living in persecuted nations? And when I say persecuted nations, I'm talking imprisonment. I'm talking about dismemberment. I'm talking about martyrdom, losing their lives, losing their children, losing their parents. And I'm talking about these people, they're not, they're, some of these people are not asking to be delivered out of that situation. You realize that? They're not asking to come to America and live a comfortable life. In fact, there are some people that are in these nations that have actually experienced escape from the situation in those nations and they actually by their own choice choose to go back. Stories of people who have left North Korea who are going back into North Korea to advance the gospel. Guys, this is Christianity. And in this story, William Wallace, in the final moments of his life, we find a scene, right, while he's, while he's, in, he's in this cave of a prison cell. And he is praying for strength. He is praying for strength that he will not abandon the cause and his conviction of what he is doing to purchase freedom for his people. And in the most moving scene of that entire movie, William Wallace is laying on a torturous bed where his body parts are being stretched out. And the guy who's torturing him is saying, if you'll just recant, if you'll just surrender, if you'll just give up, this will all go away. And William, in an act of strength, I believe strength by the Holy Spirit, cries out, freedom, in one of the loudest voices that you could imagine. It's gripping, it's chilling. This is what Paul was praying for. He was praying for a William Wallace moment. I'm, I promise you. Paul was praying that when it got to be its most difficult, that he would not deny the gospel but that there will be a surge of Holy Spirit strength. Look right here at verse 19 again. Look at verse 19. He says, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit. You know what he's asking for? He's asking for a fresh anointing to be bold. He's asking for a fresh anointing to stand in the face of danger and threat and torture and being grilled by the tribunal council. And that in that moment, he would not buckle out of intimidation or fear, but he would clearly and boldly and provocatively and powerfully share the message of the gospel. Let's go, go back to verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that I will have sufficient courage. That I will have courage. That if this means death for me, that I will have courage in such a way that my death will glorify Jesus. If this means escape and release for me, that I will still give myself to the work of the cause of advancing the gospel. Let's look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. The reason why Paul could have joy in the midst of adversity is because he lived this. He believed this, that Christ was the sole passion of his life. It wasn't Jesus plus. 
It wasn't Jesus plus recreation. It wasn't Jesus plus entertainment. It wasn't Jesus plus work. It wasn't Jesus plus advancing in, in my job. It wasn't Jesus plus accumulating all this stuff. It was Christ is the sole focus of my life. And because Christ was the dominating focus because Christ was truly central because living for the glory of Christ consumed everything about him. He could say, no matter what happens to my life, if I get released, I'm gonna keep, keep preaching the gospel. This is a win. If I get released, I'm going back to Philippi. I'm going back to Corinth. I'm going back to Ephesus. I'm gonna go everywhere I can and I'm gonna be renewed with a fresh vigor and strength and conviction. So if I live, it's, I'm living for Christ. And then he says, but if I die, it's gain. It's gain, and here's why. Because the very reason of my existence is knowing Jesus. Once Jesus grabbed a hold of me, we're gonna find this in chapter three. Once Jesus found me, once Jesus gripped me, once Jesus revealed himself to me, he says everything else is lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And he says, if I die, I get to be in the presence of Jesus right now. Paul wasn't suicidal. Paul wasn't depressed. Paul wasn't hopeless. Paul was weighing these things out and he was saying a life truly gripped and captivated by God is a win-win no matter what happens. It is a win-win no matter what happens. If I go through difficulty, I'm gonna find Christ there and I'm gonna proclaim Christ there. Paul wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to confess his way out of hardship. Paul was trying to find the message and the meaning and the power and advance the mission of Jesus in the midst of hardship. And here's the thing that we don't understand, that his hardship actually enabled his mission to go forward. But he says, listen, listen, I might die. I might be executed on the other side of this. And if so, I get to gain the treasure. I get to gain the pearl of great price. I get to gain the one thing that I have devoted my entire life to knowing, and that's Jesus. Look at verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Guys, apply this to your current context. What does fruitful labor for you look like? What does fruitful labor for you look like? If you're a student, fruitful labor looks like something. If you're a mother or a father who stays at home and your primary assignment in this season is to train your children in righteousness and truth and in justice, your assignment, your fruitful labor looks like something. If you are in the marketplace, your fruitful labor looks like something in the kingdom. If you're in the military, your fruitful labor looks like something. If you're a ministry leader, vocationally, your fruitful labor looks like something. Wrestle with this. What does fruitful labor look like for me? There is no retirement in Christianity. There is no retirement. It is fruitful labor for the cause of Jesus in small things and in large. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, guys, if I get released, I'm gonna go back to work. 
And then he's actually grippling. This is amazing. It's like we get to read this, this, entry, this entry into Paul's journal because he's literally torn on the inside. He says, I don't know what to choose. Look at the next verse. He says, I am torn between the two. I mean, the guy's literally saying, you know what, this idea, I mean, I'm just reminded right now in 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul talks about being cast down, but not destroyed, where Paul talks about being shipwrecked, where Paul talks about going without food, being beaten multiple times over and over. I think Paul was like, you know what, (laughs) I've run a pretty good race. (laughs) Like the idea of being with Jesus, this is not looking too bad right now. He literally, he was struggling. He was saying, I'm really torn, guys. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that speaks to me so powerfully in this entire passage. Because he says, my desire, if I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm gonna tell you what I want. I wanna be with Jesus. I wanna be with him right now. And then he says, this is better by far. And what he's saying essentially is he's saying, this is better for me. It's better for me. It's better for my, my sanity. It's better for my emotional state of being. Just let this all be done with. Let the madness stop. Let the fight of seeing the faith take root in fledgling Roman colonies. I'm tired. Look at the next verse. He says, Essentially, he says, but this whole thing is not about just me and Jesus. I want you to see this. I want you to see, I want you to read between the lines. I want you to really see what Paul is saying. Because Paul is saying, if this whole thing were just about me and Jesus, he goes, this, I'm, we're done. He says, it is better for you. It is better for you that I remain alive. It is better for your progress and your joy in the faith. Me living, me enduring anything and everything that I have to endure in the, in, in the name of hardship, it is worth it because it means that you're gonna grow. It means that you are going to grow. Think about this as a parent. Think about this as a mother. Think about this as a father. In moments of life when things get difficult, One of the primary things that keeps you moving forward is you realize that your presence in the life of your children is vital and no one can fill that void. And that's what Paul was saying. He's saying, it's better for you that I stay alive. It's better for you. It's better for your progress and joy in the faith. And this is the thing that I wrote in my journal as I read that. I wrote, this should be the attitude of every Christian leader and this should be the attitude of every father and mother. And then it dawned on me, guys, this is not just a leadership thing. This mindset and this attitude of doing what's best for the people, that's not just a leadership thing. Guys, that's a Christian thing. You know what that's called? That's not called just fathering. That's not called just mothering. That's not called just leading. That is called maturity. And one of the reasons that Paul lets people into this struggle is that one of his primary personal agendas 
is that Paul is writing the book of Philippians as an example. And we'll find this later in chapter four. He actually says, guys, watch my life. Follow me if you've received anything in me, if you have seen anything in me, if you have heard anything from me. He says, follow that. So he allows the Philippians into this faith struggle so that his life can be an example. And then he goes on in the next chapter and he actually exhorts and and admonishes and rebukes the Philippians to do nothing out of selfish ambition. You're gonna see this next week, it's amazing. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. You know what he's essentially saying? He's saying, listen, in the cause of Christ, in the mission of advancing God's, of, of, of God's reconciling work, don't just think about yourself. And this is why he tells them, this would be better for me. This would be easier for me. This would be more pleasurable for me. This would be more fulfilling for me. But I am not going to do anything out of selfish ambition. If it's better for you, I am going to contend that I make it through this. Guys, that's Christianity. Let's, let's read this out. Verse 25. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy, your progress, your joy, your advancement, your growth. And here's a question for us. Here's a question for us. What are you doing for someone else's progress and joy in the faith? Guys, I want to tell you, I'm just like you. I love being in prayer rooms and I love being in the presence of Jesus and I love being on the top of the mountain. But at the end of the day, we've got to ask ourselves, what am I doing for the progress and the joy of the faith in someone else? How is my life being lived as an example of joy in hardship? Put your life on display. Some of you guys need to become more accountable. Here's what I mean by that. Some of you actually need to do the difficult work of putting yourself in someone else's life and saying, I'm going to be in your life and you can watch my life and I'm gonna be a picture to you of what it means to follow Jesus. You need to do that. Because as long as you're not accountable and as long as you're just living for you and as long as you're disconnected, the decisions that you're making are losing their exponential impact of influence. Put yourself in someone's life. You're going to make mistakes, but disciple people through those mistakes and show them what it looks like to be humble and broken and contrite. Show them what it looks like to learn in the journey. Be connected. That's what Paul is choosing to do right here. Are you with me? So I know that I will remain. You know what he's saying right here? He's not using some word of faith mumbo jumbo here. That's not what he's doing. He is saying, I, he's saying, I've worked this out. I've reasoned it. I've wrestled it through. And then he says, I know what, I I know what I'm going to choose to put my faith in. I know what I'm going to choose to expect for my outcome. I'm going to expect to get delivered out of this because I've, I have found, I have rediscovered a purpose I am going to fight and labor for your joy and progress in the faith. Verse 26. So that through my being with you again, your boasting, and who's the focus on? 
so that you're boasting in Jesus. And you know what he's saying here? He's saying, basically, when I come back to you, I want your focus in Christ to be renewed on the basis of me coming back to you. I want your love for Jesus to be renewed on the basis of my coming back to you. But at the end of the day, he is saying, no matter I live, no matter I die, Christ will be exalted. Let me wrap this up in three, just three quick points for you. How can we have joy in the midst of hardship? Three things that we see in this passage. Verses 12 through 26. Number one, we see a perspective that is focused on Christ. A perspective that is focused on Christ. Now, let me just lovingly say this. When things are difficult to you, your words matter. When things are difficult, when you're offended, when you're disappointed, your words matter. Because your words actually create a partnership and a relationship with your mind and your heart. And the more you keep on saying these negative things about your situation, you're turning your attention and you're turning the attitude of your heart to that attention. And my admonishment through the scriptures to you this morning is set your eyes on Christ. Look for him. Look for the purpose. Look for the opportunity. Look for the wisdom of God. And if you don't know what that is, ask for it. Guys, I can't tell you how many times in my life I say, God, I have no idea what you're doing, but would you show me how to partner with whatever it is you're doing? I want to be on board with what you're doing in the middle of this. You're teaching me something. You're training me in something. And I'm not sure what it is yet, but I want to participate. Number two, he had a passion for the gospel. Where is our passion for the gospel of Jesus? Where is our passion for the revelation that Christ has come near, Christ is Lord, and the Spirit is at work in all things? I'm going to pray that a passion for the gospel be renewed in Antioch Church. And I'm, I'm just going to just bluntly and boldly say this. If we're focusing too much on the negative, if we're murmuring, if we're complaining, if we're fighting and devouring one another, it means that our passion for the mission of the gospel is low. Because when our passion for the mission of the gospel is high, we don't have time for that. We're so focused on people that are broken being healed that we don't have time to be the person that's breaking someone else. We're so focused on people that are not close to God being reconciled with him instead of causing other people to be further away from God because we're talking about him all the time. We must allow our passion for the gospel to have the fire of the Holy Spirit breathe on it afresh. And here's the third thing. His posture was cruciform. His perspective was Christ-centered. His passion was gospel-focused. But his posture was on the cross. His posture. His posture. Come on up, Jonathan. His posture the orientation of his life, the orientation of his heart was, God, this is what you said, that if I'm to follow you, I am to deny myself. We see this all in these verses. I am to take up my cross. We see this in these verses. And I will follow you, praying that I will have sufficient courage, that now as always, Christ will be exalted. Whether I am released, whether I'm executed, I pray that I have sufficient courage that the gospel would not suffer shame 
but that the gospel would be elevated. Come on, let's stand to our feet this morning. Ah, how many of you are thankful for the word of God? Why don't you just stir yourself up here for a second before we come to the Lord's table and pray, pray. If you could find any verse or any point to just allow the Spirit of God to penetrate right now. Holy Spirit of the living God, would you take your word? God, I pray that we would be a Christ-centered people. Oh, Spirit of the living God, we pray that we would be a gospel-focused people. And we pray that our posture would be that of the cross, that we would experience true discipleship by setting our posture on that of the cross. Holy Spirit, we pray that your word would shape us, that your word like a seed would go into fertile soil and produce fruit, a harvest of righteousness. Father, if there's anything that we have believed or bought into that is of a humanistic gospel of ease, gospel of self-fulfillment or self-advancement or self-success. God, we trade that today and we lay that down and we pray that it be circumcised and cut off of us and God, that a true gospel that is Christ-centered, gospel-focused and is cross-oriented. And may it be said of us, O oh God, that we would in no way be ashamed but that now as always we would have sufficient courage that Christ would be exalted in our lives. And may we give ourselves, I pray, to the progress and the joy of the faith of those that are around us. In Christ's name. Friends, as we approach the table of the Lord today, we recognize a couple of things. This way of life is impossible without the help of the Holy Spirit. And we recognize that the help of the Holy Spirit is impossible without the redeeming life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So listen, take heart, take heart, take heart. Don't be condemned, don't be discouraged, take heart. As we come to the table today that Christ laid his life down as an example and as a propitiatory work to bring us into the empowerment of a life of the Spirit and of that we receive abundantly today. I want to release you come to the Lord's table.